passion, I mean, it's funny because passion doesn't really fit into that, really. Um, passions are the things that you just like to do. <laughs> you know, I used to tell my kids, passions are the things that you wake up early to do or you stay up late to do. And that when you hit a bump in the road, you still do it anyway. You know, like you still want to keep doing it, even if it's hard. So you're um, saying purpose, purpose work is sort of like an idea that's so big that, and so important that discomfort is kind of maybe not irrelevant, but isn't dis, isn't a distraction from what you're trying to do purpose for purpose, you know, with purpose. And a passion project is a little bit more of of the things that you feel good about in the moment, but don't necessarily add up to a to a larger something yeah. larger than you. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's a great point. I think passion is probably as you talk about it, I think about it, it's like, it's probably more personal exploration. Passion is about exploring the things you're good at. Passion, passion, is, those things are good. I also I think your passions have to serve your purpose. In the final episode of this season of The Interesting Lives of Normal People, a season focused on passion projects, it's fitting that we wrap it up talking about how passions can help steer someone towards their purpose. In this episode, we talk with Shigun Olaganju, or Shegs as he's commonly known. Shegs migrated to the U.S. from Nigeria when he was really young. I always told myself privately, which you all probably be the first to hear this, but I, I've always thought of myself a bit of, of, as a Daniel, right? That um, I didn't have a choice moving to America. Nobody asked me, as I often say. And I always wrestle with identity, like, why am I here? Like, I'm not American enough. Kids always picking on me. Kids tell me to go back home to Africa. And then when I went to visit, you know, like my sophomore year in college, you know, they, they would be like, you know, <laughs> you know, it was very clear that I didn't belong there either, right? You know, they would try to scam me and, and scheme me, you know, because I was talking with an accent. I was dressed like someone different. And this idea of like going back home and being of value and offering something back home is, has just been in my heart for a long time. Um, I've always felt Nigerian, even though I haven't been there for so long. Ever since he can remember, he's felt that his purpose is to help the continent of Africa thrive. He's had all sorts of jobs, but most notably, he worked for the African Leadership Academy, or ALA, a prestigious leadership academy in South Africa. We'll talk a lot more about this organization, but to add some context, it's there that Shegs met our co-host, Ryan Finley. Shag's story is one of detours and the unexpected places and sometimes steps backwards that passions and purpose can take someone. Shag's also drills into the importance of humility if someone is to really stay true to their winding path that leads to their purpose. It's our hope that Shagoon's story is one that will beg the question in all of us, what's my purpose? And what am I doing to drive towards that purpose? Welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast that currently does not have a name. Cake show. Jcast. Nope. Is it cake show or cake show? It's neither. So the cake knock cast. It off. All right. <laughs> cake pod. Cake cast. Nope. Cake cast. Cake. For anybody who's listening, cake rhymes with Jake, so it's very stupid. <laughs> yeah, you definitely need to say for anyone who's listening. Yes. <laughs> I guess to sort through listening. the people who are listening and the people who are not presently listening. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Anyway, today uh, we are joined by Shagun Olagunju, a friend, a good friend of. Um, I've actually just met Shagun in this uh, this conversation, so I'm very excited to talk with you, Shagun. Um, I know that you've known the Ryan's for a really long time. 
and kind of looking at some of your background, you've done a lot of really cool things and have a lot of experiences worldwide, internationally, and just a lot of conversation I know that we can have. So we are super pumped that you've decided to join us and chat with us um, today. Thank so you. welcome. Welcome, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to be with you all. Shex, if you had to give yourself, first question, if you had to kind of give yourself a kind of a tagline, is there a way that you would kind of describe yourself either professionally or personally? Yeah, actually, the, the tagline that I'm using a lot in my resume these days is a serial social entrepreneur. There's a lot, there's a lot there. Okay. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe start with defining intrapreneur. Yeah, that, I, don't, I didn't know it was maybe it was pronouncing it differently. On, uh, <laughs> <laughs> intrapreneur. It's, it's opposite. That's my Nigerian accent. Entrepreneur. Yeah. You don't know about intrapreneurs. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be no. rude. Intra, intra, yeah, yeah. No, it's actually, okay, okay. It's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, the concept is, I'm not sure where it's from, but the idea is that you can be entrepreneurial within an existing entity, right? And so oftentimes uh, we only think about entrepreneurship or using those skills of entrepreneurship within uh, the startup context, right? And so um, you can start up things, you can create things, you can drive new creations, new innovations, new inventions within existing uh, entities. And, and that's really where I tend to find myself is uh, kind of that second follower type. Maybe before we get into kind of what some of the things that you are doing or have done, could you give us more of a background? Just like, where are you from? Uh, how did you get to be where in some of the spheres of influence that you that you have now? So I was born in, in Nigeria. I was born in, in Kaduna, which is northern Nigeria. My people are from the south west however so in what we call yoruba land so uh, my people are yoruba uh one of the you know three major uh people groups in nigeria and so i uh, grew up there till i was seven moved to delaware delaware spent my education elementary middle school and high school um then i i left delaware because you know who doesn't and uh, <laughs> i went to north carolina for school studied business at unc Chapel Hill, go heels. And um, yeah, for, actually Chapel Hill was, was quite a significant season in my life. Actually, you know, as we talk about the topic of sort of passion or direction or purpose, um, I had a couple of really seminal moments, experiences in college that, that shifted, I think, the trajectory of my life. But uh, ultimately after college, I ended up joining a, a nonprofit called Campus Crusade for Christ. They were, um, I actually been involved with a ministry called the Impact Movement, which was a, basically Campus Crusade for Christ for Black kids. And uh, we started it on our campus, me and a friend. Uh, we started the first Bible study and grew that into ultimately into like a, you know, running group. And got really involved with that. And they were looking for people to help, to help us kind of spin this ministry out into its own entity, separate from Crusade. Uh, crew as it's called now and um yeah so i ended up moving down to orlando florida as a missionary for uh my first job i re recognized probably about halfway through that year of ministry that vocational ministry was not my calling in life um i really felt it felt very clear that i had been gifted with certain skill sets and i wasn't using them to my maximum and so i knew i wanted to get back to the continent at that point and um I wanted to, I didn't want to go back empty handed. Um, having good intentions was not enough. 
I'm actually curious, and I know we've got way more to unpack, but I'm curious to hear more about, you know, you, when you go do a year of what's supposed to be a, you know, passion filled mission oriented job or potentially the beginning of a career. And you're realizing that what tell, tell us about that. Like, how'd you connect with this? Isn't the right fit for me. Oh, you are opening up a can, my friend. <laughs> deep, deep can. Man, so. It's all the dirt. So I often tell the story to like students and young people that, you know, I, I, in high school, I, um, I was going to follow my father's footsteps. My dad was a math professor. Um, I think he wanted us all to be engineers, you know, as, as there's a kind of this very African parent thing about being an immigrant, trying to find very, you know, stable, steady, you know, careers. And so. Um, I was going to go into the engineering, but I took a class. And I think it's kind of the beginning where I, I, one, had the freedom, but also took the liberty to, like, say, I'm going to do what I find, um, you know, most compelling. Right? And so, so in high school, I took a class. I took an economics class with Ms. Fournier, and it was just dope. I loved it. I love macroeconomics. I love that supply-demand curve. It blew my mind. And. I said, I want to study business. And so I just, that's why I applied to UNC. Never seen it before, never been there. Actually, I'd been there once with my sister when she was uh, applying two years earlier, but I didn't really care so much. Uh, it was a great program. They offered me some money. So I took it. And so I got to UNC. I was going to study business. And uh, yeah, I think I was kind of on that track. You know, and, and the business program at UNC was really hard to get into. It was hard to get into out of state. And so it was like a big deal. Um, <laughs> gosh, there's so much story here. Um, but anyway, so probably like two years in, you have to do this like two years of pre-work to get into the B school. Um, I end up like my second year, last semester, I'll, have to, I'll tell this story because I think it's also important to tell stories of like failure and, and where things don't work out because my life did not work out at all for in a straight path. So anyway, I end up failing um, business statistics. I got a D, I don't know, it's not quite failing, but I needed a C in order to like meet my prerequisites. I took it once, failed it, took it twice, failed it again. So it's now summer of my sophomore year, right? So I'm supposed to take it in the summer, right? As my last chance to like meet my prerequisites to get into the B-School program, the official B-School program. And I just can't do it. I can't put myself through it again. And so I know I don't, I don't like becoming an RA that summer. Also, because I can't go home. I don't know why. I just couldn't go home with my, to my dad <laughs> and look him in the face. So anyway, I remember I, I, I called him. I called him, I said, look, you know, I was like, I can't, he said, I said, I'm, I'm not going to get in. They, they rescinded my, my provisional acceptance into the business school. And he said, well, you know, I'm not going to keep paying for you to go there and do just regular economics. You know, you better bring your back back to Delaware, your butt back to Delaware. Um, and something in me was just like, no, I can't do that. Like, why would I can't, I can't go back to Delaware, you know? And uh, that was actually a really interesting time because that summer, Again, I, I refused to take the class. I don't know what was got in my mind, but probably about halfway through the summer, I've spent a lot of time thinking and reflecting, and that's sort of been, a, I think, a trait of mine for, for since, really since I was being young. And I decided to write a letter. And I wish I had a copy of that letter now, but I wrote a letter to the, I think it was Karen Peters. She was the admissions officer. And the letter basically said, look, it was kind of two arguments. One is, I'm good enough, and two, like, this is my calling. Like, what I, what I feel called to do in the world, I need this to get me there. And basically, I said, look, I, I want to go back to Nigeria, and I want to I help my countrymen have access to the kind of things that will help um, change the, 
the way of life for people, help raise the standard of living for my people. And, you know, this education, not just for me, it's for them. And uh, I sent that letter off. I don't know. I, I think it was an email. It must have been an email. Um, and I don't know. I just waited. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> I was doing summer RAing. I hadn't really, I hadn't packed my stuff. I don't know. I can't, you know, I was just, and I got a, I got a letter back while I was still an RA. <laughs> it was like, we have admitted you into the program. So um, from that moment, like I was committed to this business thing. Like I was committed to learning. Um, and it was very, it was an important sort of process. And that's really ownership, right? Like that sense of purpose. So I, I think it's even more than passion. It was a very clear sense of purpose, right? That, that this was, I was here for a reason. Um, and so anyway, fast forward senior year <laughs> and I'm taking this class with a professor. I really like professor Dido marketing professor, but he's teaching this class that he started a couple years back called the dark side of globalization. UNC is a Nike school. And that time there was a lot of protests around like cha supply chain and, and sort of, uh, what's this called? Like, um, sweatshop kind mm -hmm. of, you know, by Nike and all the places. So big protests at UNC. Anyway, so he started this class and the class basically is teaching you about kind of all the ways in which, you know, business can go wrong, right? But then also he starts to introduce all these ways business can, can work to help people. And I learned about like the organic cotton industry and fair trade. And, and I, I think I, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of a nonprofit honestly before that class, but like, you know, this idea that you could do well and do good, right? That you could, that I could use my, my analytical thinking to, to, to like meet where I think ultimately, I think God has given me a heart of mercy, right? To care for people. And so that was powerful. And that really changed the direction of my life. Cause I was going to go into banking probably straight away. Um, but I decided to, to take a shot at this uh, UNC thing. I mean, this, this, this crew thing. And so that kind of, that got me there willing to try that and pursue that. Um, and so when I got to crew, <laughs> The, what was weird about it was like, like almost like four months in, I was like, no, this, I can't do this. Like, this is not, this is not for me. Like, you know, so it's like from such certainty and from such like pursuit to like this moment of like, no, this is not what I thought it was. Um, and I was looking for a lot of things when I went to crew, I was looking for like a lot more like kind of mentorship and discipleship, but I also just had this belief. I mean, I was an idealist even back then. And it just was not, it was not living up to my ideals. And then I realized that again, I kind of came back to like, why was I here? I came back to this thing like uh, that I felt very strongly about me going back to content. And this, this story that I've, I've always told myself privately, which you all probably be the first to hear this, but I, I've always thought of myself a bit of, of, as a Daniel, right? That um, I didn't have a choice moving to America. Nobody asked me, as I often say. And, uh, and so like Daniel, I felt like, okay, so why? And I always wrestled with identity. Like, why am I here? Like, I'm not American enough. Kids always picking on me. Kids telling me to go back home to Africa. And then when I went to visit, you know, like my sophomore in college, you know, they, they would be like, you know, <laughs> you know, it was very clear that I didn't belong there either. Right. You know, they would try to scam me and, and scheme me, you know, cause I was talking with an accent. I was dressed like someone different. Um, so I didn't feel like I was one of them either. And so, and this idea of like going back home, and 
being of value and offering something back home is, has just been in my heart for a long time. Um, I've always felt Nigerian, even though I haven't been there for so long. And so, um, anyway, so that, that kernel kind of came back in that season and it just, it just kind of illuminated something in my mind. I was like, I'm, that's what I need to pursue. I need to get back, back there. And it did something very interesting. Um, I don't know if I heard it from somewhere, but I did something interesting when I started to do like a backwards plan and I started to say, okay, if I'm looking at all the leaders that, that people talk bad about in Nigeria, like what do I need to be different than them? And so I started to think, and I was like, you know, I need to have, <laughs> this is one of the reasons, you know, Finn might appreciate this. Like I, I realized then that I need to be able to speak French. Like they were surrounded by French speaking countries. Why are we able to do business and, 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 you know, uh, you know, strike great partnerships with our, with our surrounding neighbors. Like I need to learn to speak French. Um, uh, we need to improve our economy, you know, like, you know, so I was already in business, but I was like, but like what drives economy in America is like, it's, 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 it's small business. So I, I had the opportunity to join the best small business bank in America, BB&T. Like I need to go back there. Like I need to learn how they do it. Um, and then I began to just think about all these things that I would need. Right. And, and what, actually what was powerful though, was when I was, I think I was reading the book called the master plan of evangelism or something of that nature. But I think this picture formed in my mind in that moment, this idea that the great, some of the people, the people who have done great works in their life did it at like, and mind you, I was young, but I was like, they did it when they were old, you know, they were 30, 32, like <laughs> time. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know everything, once you? You know, Jesus did his ministry at 33, you know what I'm saying? Like MLK was like in his 30s, like, yeah. you know, Gandhi was in his 30s. Um, but actually, but even more than that, I started thinking about like, but people who really make a name for themselves are even older than that. They're like in their fifties and sixties, right? Like people who are like, at the, who are producing their masterworks, right? Their masterpieces are in their fifties and sixties. So I remember just this weight lifting off of me. It's like, I don't have to spend the next five years trying to become my best self. I have to spend the next 20, 10, 15, 20 years gathering all the pieces to be there when I'm 48 or 52 or how I need some more years. So I'm going to add 55. So, that, you know, so, so that was like, a, that was, that was, a, you know, a really important thought process for me. And that really shaped the trajectory of really the next five, six years of my life. I mean, I had a very clear picture. Cause what it sounds like you were figuring out was like a pretty complicated thing, right? That's a lot of, that's, that's, first of all, that move requires changing businesses a lot, right? So you're, to pick those things up. So you're realizing something that you're kind of isn't going to fit into the role you're currently in and you need to go accumulate a number of experiences in a number of places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make a couple observations and questions. Sure. First of all, the fact that you remember so many of your teachers names <laughs> is super impressive. I don't think I remember any of my professors' names in college. So well done. There. <laughs> um, makes, makes me realize that I didn't learn anything in college. Um, the, the other thing you said that, uh, that really stuck out to me, and I think this is, and, and again, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, having a white evangelical outlook on so many things just taints the way you look at stuff is how you said you were a missionary to in Orlando and because just so often in white evangelical America, we're like, oh, we're going to be a missionary to Africa. Right, right, and like, right. that's the way it is. You go from America to Africa or whatever country and continent mm -hmm. and you do mission work and we just kind of forget that oh it actually can go in the opposite direction yeah. and oftentimes it should so i love that um 
so that the question I have is when you felt like, oh, ministry isn't for me, um, did you ever feel like it was? Was there ever a sense that, hey, I should be doing ministry? Or was it just kind of a, hey, this is a good opportunity that's in front of me right now. So I'll just take it. That's a great question. Um, no, that, actually, the funny thing is it, they brought me on there to do fundraising. So I was never like preacher. Hmm. I always had skills. Um, and so that was always my sense of it. Um, if, I, if, I, if I'm honest, I never did any evangelism while I was there. Like, I was always very scared of that part of, of it. And then I read a book actually at, at Crew that was really powerful, which is about being a contagious Christian. And basically this, 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 that's the idea that, you know, uh, you don't, there's not only one way to, to do evangelism, right? You can do it relationally, right? And that was my strength. Um, I, I, had, I remember, there's one of those funny moments. I remember in college, um, having this moment of like prayer or contemplation or whatever it was, but I basically promised myself that I would always choose relationships over my grades. And so, and <laughs> it's so admirable. I, I just, just, you know, but it was like, I think I was learning about myself then that this is the thing that I care yeah. most about. This is what, what is, you know, what I love about the space. And so I would say, like, you know, if someone comes to me and people always come to me asking for advice, and you know, you know, I prayed for wisdom a lot as a kid. Let's just say that. Um, and I would just say, look, I, I'd rather spend a whole night with a with a friend and have to figure out my work later than say, oh, I got to study now. Now, like I, that wasn't the way I wanted to live in in college. And so, so I mean, I think you know, relationship has always been sort of my style. Um, so I never thought I would be a minister in a sense. And it's it's interesting. I, I joined a Christian fraternity at UNC, and we had this like ceremony we do when you when you cross and the ceremony is basically people praying for you and then there's like a prophetic word that goes out and one of the prophetic words that came out uh was basically like that you know this person saw me as a minister but not like a typical minister like doing you know kind of you know leading a flock in a different kind of way or, or you know serving or equipping the flock in a different kind of way than sort of typical you know sermon on a sunday kind of thing so um it's kind of been maybe in the back of my mind that I was never going to be that and which is probably why it was easier for me to make that choice so quickly um just after a year I decided in college to choose friends over grades too <laughs> but it was just because I like going to parties and playing board games no, I enjoy that too. was your shagoon was your dad on board for that hells no <laughs> I don't know. Which is interesting, right? Because it's really because of my dad that I had the freedom to make these choices, right? My dad had very early on basically said, you can go wherever you want for college. Like, you know, he, we never had, we never talked about money, which you probably should have, which is a you know, problem in many African homes, but we never talked about the money or the cost of education. It was just like, you know, go wherever you want. And, um, and, and he was always, you know, even like with marriage, it was like marry whoever you want. Like it was just, there was a lot of freedom that they gave us. And so I, I kind of always, and a lot of independence that they built into us. And so I always, I, I always felt like it was my, it was my responsibility to kind of live out the, the best life, right? I could because of what my parents sacrificed. Actually, I read, I was listening to a podcast. Hey, podcast. Whoa. Hey. I was listening to a podcast where uh, I think it was um, Armchair Expert where they were interviewing Angela Duckworth who wrote Grit. And she was talking about how, you know, her, they were debating a lot, like what counts as first generation? Is that the generation that moves to, you know, America or immigrates? Or is that the 
the kids born of that family. But point is she was getting into how her dad, she asked her dad one day, cause he had a lot of high standards for her education. Um, when she decided not to be a medical doctor, he said, will you at least be a Senator? <laughs> <laughs> so, as an example, here's what she says, the podcast, but she said that she asked him one day, would you rather be successful or would you rather be happy? And he spent a few days thinking about it and came back and said, I'd rather be successful. Mm. And, and she sort of unpacks that. Like when you have the grit, when you have make the decision, like when you make the decision to move to another country in general, but especially one where you're going to be very different looking than most of the people, you're making a choice for something other than present happiness, right? Rather Absolutely. than daily happiness, rather than daily comfort. And that there is a different mindset. Yeah. But that's not even like, a, it's not even, that's not even a, a what's that word that sort of false equivalence or, or whatever that's it's 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 a it's a it's a that's a weak fight right false dichotomy you know yeah the dichotomy is is is, is weak because you know one thing i had to think about and i had to come to grips with this idea of what is happiness right and then a lot of people's like oh yeah do it for your happiness do it for your happiness but i mean what i realized was that happiness is momentary right it's fleeting yeah. right and so what thing i started talking about was and think of a lot about it, it's like how do i pursue joy right you know like some of the some of the things I've enjoyed the most, had the most satisfaction from, were not the 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 jobs or the activities where I was just happy all the time, right? They were they actually had difficulty in them. So happiness, I realized that that's not what I'm chasing after. Right? That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't like truly satisfy. And so you know, yeah, like I think you know that it's 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 also, also I think it's a false carrot. This idea of like, oh yeah, you know, do what makes you happy. And and you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I was sharing with a, a class. I was teaching a class on sharing about passion and purpose and and uh you know these ladies from the griot were talking about you know what does it mean to pursue passion and basically they said you know again that's one of those sort of things that has been overdone like you know don't pursue passion passions are actually dangerous passions can be um reckless and harmful <laughs> you know like you know why why are you pursuing passions like pursue purpose right yeah i, don't, I think for sure these words are very we simplify them. And I've, I've thought about that success versus happiness question since hearing that interview. And I'm like, I don't think these things aren't opposites or they aren't two individual components, you know, in my life. So we, we maybe have been leading J Jake astray as we uh, help him pursue his passion project. We've been super reckless. Getting them all riled up to, yeah, to pursue the. Thanks a lot, Shegs. You're the only one who's been honest and most helpful friend that I have, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> moving along in the in this journey um mm. so what were the next kind of like major milestones yeah so i mean amazing story i i decided i was going to leave impact um so just so happened that that was the the same month that my offer to join the bank which i turned down expired and so i called them and said hey look i i know i can't my offer no longer is valid but i think i want to come back join this, you know, this, yeah, this executive training program at BBNT. And uh, I think I called them on a Friday. And on Saturday morning, they had airmailed the offer to my house. And uh, I remember, I mean, I prayed a lot about like, you know, this idea of like, you know, pursuing the things of, of God really will not put you in a worse place. Um, and that was for me, it was like testament. So I was like, bet, that's it. Like the Lord is behind this. Like he's, it's okay. And I was like, I'm gonna commit to this for the full year. But I have I already have my next move, and so I, I moved to Winston Salem, did six months at BBNT University. Um, I actually learned a lot about leadership development there. A lot of stuff that I ended up using later on in my in my 
you know, education career. Uh, spent two years there working as a banker and realized then that that was like, it was just giving money to people who already had money. Um, I was actually particularly excited to move to Prince George's County, which is a predominantly black county. I was trying to like help young entrepreneurs, like, you know, get access to capital. It just wasn't happening. This was right before the recession. So everything was tightening up and BBT is notoriously a very conservative lender. Um, so anyway, left that, ended up um, joining a, one of the, you know, potential clients that I called on was a, was a, you know, black uh, alumni at UNC. He was running a nonprofit. He said, well, you want to come work for me? I said, sure, why not? And uh, I spent a year working for this nonprofit, basically like a mentorship program. It's like a mini ALA, really. Um, summer program, bring kids for two summers. They get great school stuff from Georgetown, great internships and experiences. Anyway, that was like, I, that was basically my last stop on the for-profit train. I mean, ever since then, I've been working for nonprofits. And so, uh, yeah, I did that. Um, unfortunately, lost that job in about nine months. Moved home with my parents, found uh, another gig. And now, now it's committed. I was like, you know what? The next thing, I'm, it's got to get me to the content because I, I can't. I'm tired. I've been waiting. I, I've been looking for, like, visas and, like, I can't do it. Next job. Found this. Actually, this job found me. <laughs> another crazy story. I'm, I don't have a job but I have a girlfriend who I'm, I'm in love with and I want to marry. So, and actually, actually my big brother says, why are you in Delaware, man? Like, you don't belong here. This place ain't for you. Like, you know, and I just listen to me, yeah, like none of my dreams, none of my aspirations take me through Delaware. Like, you know, so I don't have a job. It's like, but I gotta get back to DC. DC is where I need to be. I don't know what I need to be doing, but I know where I need to be. And sometimes it, it happens that way in the journey, I think. So I need to be in DC. So anyway, I go back to DC, stay with my cousin, don't have a job. And I just walk. I'm walking to like gallery place um, and I just see a sign that says interviews happening today. And it's pot bellies, it's a little sandwich shop. And they're doing interviews for like all of the city. They're just going like gangbusters, it's like a fair, it's like an employee fair day. So I go in there, interview, cause I'm like thinking like, okay, look, I don't have a job yet. Let me become a waiter or something. I can do, you know, be a great skill to have future in life. I'll be a waiter, make some dough. And I get this interview, they hire me. It's like, look, um, we'll hire you right today, like you can start work next week. Um, and they hired me and uh, they actually have a few locations around the city, but they, they actually hired me to work in the location next to the bank I used to work at before I went to the nonprofit. And so it turns out that I'm working next door <laughs> to my former office. And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, within like a week's time, I'm taking out the trash but I haven't even made it to like behind the counter yet. Like I'm cleaning, I'm still cleaning bathrooms and taking trash out. And I run into one of my, one of my former colleagues and she's driving her Audi and she's like, Hey, is that you should go? I was like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, girl, that's me. That's me girl. <laughs> and it's like, Hey, it's like, and then, and then, and then I, I kid you not after that, there's like a stream of BB and T people coming through and I'm guaranteed. They're just trying to make sure like, is this him for real? <laughs> like what? He's, he's, he's cutting sandwiches now. And so sure enough, like the next week, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, I'm like, I'm serving people. And, you know, these are people that I was, I would have been leading, right? You know, we were, you know, somewhere we were in the executive program together. You know, we were, yeah, you know, whatever. I was, I was, yeah. Anyway, long story short is that uh, one of those people tells another colleague about me working at Potbelly, right? It so happens that that colleague who has now left the organization has been looking for me 
for the last six or seven weeks because she wants me to come work for her. And uh, so it turns out that there was a job waiting for me this whole time, but I needed to humble myself. Is what, this is the story I, I realized. I need to humble myself really to the point of humiliation to do that work. And so she literally calls the, the, the shop one morning. Says, can I speak to Shagoon? And the manager's like, hey, you have a call? I was like, no, I don't have nobody knows. Doesn't Nobody knows I work here. Nobody's calling me at Pop Bellies on Hell Street. It's a different Shagoon. Different Shagoon. Like, you know, it's not happening. And it was like, no, they're asking for you. So I pick up the phone and it's my, it's my friend Jackie. And she's like, hey, I've got a job for you. <laughs> Do you want to go work with me? It's <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> and that's how I got my next gig. So I ended up working, doing financial literacy work in the, in the, in the city uh, for public schools, um, you know, black and brown kids. It's like the, it's like the you know, the urban um, version of JA, basically. So again, contextualized ministry in many ways. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my next gig. And I was really excited because they actually had a South Africa office. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. If I do my job well, I can like put a request in to transfer to South Africa. And then I'll finally live my dream. I was like, ah, like, Lord, he's just letting, he's just stacking it all up. <laughs> ah, alas, that didn't work. So wait, wait before <laughs> that's a, I'm curious, whole, I've, I have one big question I want to go back to, but that's maybe a whole sidetrack that we should come to. But first, I'm just curious about the, the you kind of skimmed over how you felt about being seen by your former coworkers. <laughs> I, and I, I just, I feel, I mean, the reason I want to ask about this before you like talk about that is I feel like one of the ways that people get in their own way in their career journeys is needing every single step to be forward and not sure. because we, all the all the challenging feelings that come with maybe taking a step back to be able to, you know, take maybe it's just assess the situation like where do I actually want to go so that my next step forward is in a direction that's more in line or whatever. But it feels like we get stuck on a path and we're not willing to back up a little bit to find the new path. So I'm curious about the the feel like that is that is pretty much that is pretty much like the nightmare scenario for people in that that same tension of like, I can't run into who knew me from my previous life if I take a step back. Yeah. So I just want to hear a little bit about how did that really feel? Or were you cool with it? Were you just owning it? Oh, no, it was hard. It was painful. I mean, I, everybody has, I had my pride, but <clears throat> I think really when I think about like my faith journey at that point, like the Lord was teaching me a lot about humility. And I, and I think the, the phrase that came out of for me was like, out of humiliation comes humility, right? Like, you know, so... No, it was humiliating <laughs> because what I, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to say was that I was a better performer. I had more potential than all these other people, right? I, I outperformed many of them in the, in the executive program. Um, and so I, mean, I knew what I was capable of. And so it was, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but I also, had a, I, also, I also knew I was where I needed to be, you know? And that was more comforting than, than almost anything else. Like I knew I was supposed to be in D.C., I knew it because I knew like if I wanted to be an international, if I'm going to get back to the content, if I want to go do the work I want to do on the, in, at home in Nigeria, I need to be around this international network of people. I, I just have to be here and something can happen. And so I had a lot of belief in that time, but it was, it was not easy. I was, you know, was, you know, the sandwiches were good because I, I had a meal every day, but that was about it, you know, and, and also I was able to like see my, my, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, so those were like the, the big benefits of like, you know, Ironically, the only time I've been to Pop Belly was in DC. 
actually. My birthday. Yeah. Yeah. For his birthday. Was it for Finn's birthday? The first time I went to Potbelly was in D.C., the one right by the White House, because my brother worked at Living Social right by there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the second time I went to Potbelly was in Baltimore, right by uh, that one that's right by the water near Camden Yard. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I think I've been there so that one, the, too. Let's actually talk about Potbelly for a little while. That's a pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but Brought to you by So Pop moving on to kind of the next phase, this job that you took uh, in D.C. Operation was, was hard. It was significant in the sense that it was hard. It was, it was actually, and this is what's important also, often I find that there are many experiences that you realize what you do not want to do or the kind of leader you do not want to be. Like that was that experience was formative in shaping the kind of education that I did not want to be a part of large scale, like mass sort of running through numbers. I knew it became very clear to me like I did not want to be involved in that kind of work. I need to be intimate. I need to see able to sit with the same group of kids for a prolonged period of time so that I can see whether what I'm doing actually is taking root. So my, my commitment to sort of outcomes-based impact work grew out of that season. It also was very clear to me that what leadership, what good leadership looked like out of that. I had a great manager, great mentor, um, and there was just a lot of, you know, for me, values issues that I came across in that experience. And it, it just was it, was, it really solidified in me, like, the kind of leader I wanted to be and the kind of leader I did not want to be. What, what kind of examples did he, did you take away from that? Like, what is, what are some of the things that you remember being like, that's the, that's the kind of leader I want to be, or that is an effective quality. I knew I wanted to be the kind of manager who cared about their direct reports more than just what, how they perform. My, my manager, Jackie, she's like my big sister. She, I taught, she helped me figure out whether I wanted to propose to my wife or not. Right. She, um, I mean, she, I called her a Valentine. She helped me get my Valentine's day gifts, right. <laughs> you know, like, but she cared about me and she, she was tough on me. She knew that I had potential. She knew I wasn't organized. Um, and she said, you're going to have to get organized. And she just, she forced me to get myself organized because I was managing a lot of volunteers and it was just, she's like, it's just a matter of putting the piece, puzzle pieces in place and making it run. And so she cared about my development. Um, and, and that for me was, was uh, a crucial factor. I'm wondering, right, so this is before you, you finally make your move to the continent. I'm foreshadowing for anyone who's listening. Uh, <laughs> um, did you know, what did you know about yourself and your passions or your, like, could at that point you're jumping off, you're about to go to the, back to the continent, um, I'll be at a different part of the continent. What did you know about yourself then uh, that you're like, yes, this is me. This is true. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Was it, was it just that, like you wanted to be on the continent? Was it just like entrepreneurship? What was it? I did a lot of reflection. I, I thought about what I was good at, what I cared about. And, and I wrote a letter to all of my friends, my, all my network, actually, not just my friends, my whole network. And I sent an email and said, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. I'm trying, I wish I could find it for you all now. I basically said, I, I know I want to work with young people. I would know I want to work on the, on the continent. I know I want to work in a, in, a, with a, in a place where my manager, right, cares about me as a person. Um, I, wrote, I wrote a number of things like that. I don't think I even wrote anything about my strengths. I just wrote about what I wanted. Uh, and then I emailed that to all, to all my, the people I knew. 
And it was one of my friends who sent me an email about African Leadership Academy was looking for teaching fellows. Again, I knew where I, where I needed to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I, that was actually a big question. I've, I've always struggled with that. Even now I struggle with like, I don't know what to do. Like, what is my thing? <clears throat> I mean, at that point, what, what was my thing? <laughs> you know, I'd been in banking for two years. Um, my banker, not really. Uh, I'd been in financial literacy. Um, you know, I just, just, I've just been in so many things. I was moving two years, two years, two years, two years, moving from thing to thing. So I didn't really know that I had a thing, but I knew where I needed to be. And it was, it was overseas. I needed to be on the continent. And it's funny enough, I actually knew that I wanted to be in South Africa. The reason why I was excited about Operation Home Habit in South Africa also is that I knew, that, well, I had thought about it. I had done the backward planning again. I'd said, look, if I'm going to get to Nigeria, I can't handle that place right away. Like, I'm too soft. I need a cushioned, I need a cushioned landing. South Africa, and, and in my senior in college, I went to South Africa for, for a trip with a friend, and I just toured the whole country, and I fell in love. I was like, yeah, I can do South Africa. Let me go there first. Uh, and so that was like my landing place, and I knew that's where I need to land first. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, it's funny, like, Ryan, like, I applied to be a teaching fellow. There was no leadership opportunity available then. I didn't know I was going to do leadership or do any of that stuff. I just wanted to be a teaching fellow. I, again, and I was... Now, again, this is to Jake, your point about like what was important about some of these different moments, like that pot belly moment prepared me for this teaching fellow moment. Like if like my my willingness to humble myself to be where I needed to be made me think, OK, at this point now, I've done three years, you know, like I'm five years into my professional career. I'm a you know program manager. But being a teaching fellow, basically starting a new career trajectory at the bottom. Like what I was willing to do that because Ailey was going to sponsor my visa to be in South Africa. Like that was like the most important thing. And I jumped at that. Yeah. But also just to, just, to pay, just for everyone to understand to be a teaching fellow, it's like, it is to take the job that the 21 year olds are fighting for. So, I mean, like you were, you were probably interviewing against people who were 21 yeah. finishing at Yale, finishing at Harvard, um, who are, tr who are trying to, this was a competitive opportunity for them to go to South Africa and teach basically a teach, teach for America, but teach yeah. at ALA. Um, and you were, you were as a 20, what, 28 yeah, something, probably. um, 28 year old compete, not competing, but also like willingly taking this thing that looks probably looked like a pretty solid backwards step. Yeah, it was. Let me, let me just stop before we go any further. Um, maybe we could talk for a second or explain what ALA stands for. Also want to clarify that Finn and Cheggs both work there. So that was one of the connections I know. So LA African Leadership Academy um, was a pretty unique institution. Um, I think for me, the thing that caught my attention right away were the values of the institution and the vision. The vision of the institution is to bring peace and prosperity to Africa. And I always add, since, since I've left, I've started adding in our lifetime. And, um, and but, the, but the mission of the organization was to, was to develop the next generation of leaders for the continent of Africa that would bring about that peace and prosperity. So it's a, just to add on, it's a, it's a high school. It's a two-year high school. Um, it takes the best and the brightest uh, 16 to 18-year-olds from all African nations um, and brings them down for this basically two-year heavy, intensive academic program. But the thing that makes it special is that um, they have this curriculum in, in leadership, entrepreneurship, and African studies. And so <clears throat> uh, 
um, basically it's, it's in this, in the, the school is, it is a magnet worldwide for people who want to teach something outside of the norm. Um, i.e. in this case, African studies, uh, and what Sheggs helped lead, uh, the initiation of, which is a creation of entrepreneurial leadership. So bringing to the leader, bringing together the, the leadership and the entrepreneurship. Um, it's this, it's this place that's really like, you know, kind of a city on the hill in the sense that literally people from around the world flock to this place to see what has been created. It's, it's a one of a kind high school, uh, ish experience. And, um, but it wasn't that when Chegg started, it was the two-year-old fledgling, probably not going to make it nonprofit. Uh, and I'm sure just even going down there was a, was a risk, but as you said, they would sponsor your visa. So <laughs> uh, at least that was, <laughs> at least that was going to happen. What, what was the difference in time, the timelines between you two getting there? But I first met Shagun in a bar in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival because Shagun was uh, a Bezos a, a faculty scholar. Interesting to be headed to work with someone in Johannesburg and you meet them five hours drive from your childhood home. That, the crazy thing about that for me was that Shag was like, yeah, man, just come up here. Like we're at this thing. There's just like a lot of people around. And I was like, can I just crash the Aspen Ideas Festival? <laughs> you know, and, and like this thing sponsored by the Bezos family. And so, but what ended up happening was I went up there and they're, and they're so welcoming. Like the, the Mike and Jackie Bezos are just two of the best people. But they, Shag like, he introduced me as this new person for ALA. And they're like, oh my gosh, like come in. You can, you know, hang out. And then like, do you want to come over to our house tonight for the 4th of July, like barbecue? And I was like, uh, you don't need to ask that question. You can just say you're invited and obviously I will go. So I'm just, I was like hoping to have a random conversation with this guy. Cause I thought there was a small chance that ALA was a scam. And I was just like, I've got to meet this guy who's supposedly going to be my manager. And the next thing I knew, I'm like watching, I think we we're watching fireworks at the freaking Bezos mansion in Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> I'm like walking through their basement, which is Narnia. I'm actually serious. It is, it is Narnia is what their basement was. Their, the Bezos mansion was Narnia. And I'm just like, what is my life right now? I cannot, how did all these things come Wait, together? Wait, is that like the actual um, theme of their basement? Yes. Like you walk into a wardrobe downstairs and the entire thing is Narnia. You kind of took a chance on ALA and then like pretty quickly became a high flyer in the institution, obviously. Um, that's, and you know, you end up being my, my manager there for, for a few years. Um, what, what do you attribute that like kind of quick jump in the organization kind of fellow to leading a department within nine months less than, um, to what do you attribute that? Like, how did you jump so fast and how did you just like climb in that organization like you did? Um, I think it, it really went to my sense of purpose. Uh, like I joined ALA because all the things I've told you about what I wanted to do on the continent, ALA was the proxy for me, right? I, like, I don't have to be in Nigeria, but they're gonna be Nigerian kids here who uh, can go back and I can give them the things that I've learned right, to help make our country better. And so I actually, the, the really, the funny thing is, it's a bit confusing. At some point they kind of offered me to be the head of leadership 
Uh, and then I got there and there was already a head of leadership. And so I was like, okay, uh, you know, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I, you know, whatever it was like, cool. Uh, and then everybody left cause it was, it was, things were kind of bad. And, uh, but it was probably about two months before the end of the school year. And I wrote a kind of a, a mini manifesto. And I just said, this is my vision for what leadership at African Nation Academy can look like. And I think that's what made the difference. Um, I had a very clear sense of what this place could do and what it needed to do for kids to like, to like, to live out that vision. Cause that vision that ALA wrote was not ALA's vision. That was my vision for Africa. So I own that. And I, and I've, you know, to this day, I still own that right more than, so I always held ALA to that. Like I was uh, a constituent of the continent myself. And not just because, and so like, you know, so all those things, the values, those are the values, those are things that I had written it for myself in my journals, right? Those values meant so much to me. And so it just felt like this perfect fit. Um, but I, you know, I always say to friends that, and, and some folks that I meet, like I never went to ALA because I heard, you know, the founders speak eloquently or make their pitch or make their case. I just read, I read values, I read vision and mission as like, this is where my calling needs to take me right now. And so I wrote that like, you know, seven page like vision document. And that's when I got a call from Chris and Fred to meet with Jenny. Wait, did you give it to them? <laughs> How did oh, yeah. they, and they were I, like, we got to talk to this. We got to talk to him about a leadership position because he's on, he's on to something. Well, it's funny. It's, it's a bit about that and opportunity, right? Literally, literally everyone else has left. <laughs> so I don't know what, I mean, but they could have done what they often did, which is like go find some high flying person somewhere else, right? And, and, and bring them, parachute them in. Um, but, you know, they, they gave me a chance based on what I, I, I put down. But there's a um, chance if your manifesto had been like, you know what ALA needs is more snacks. You still would have gotten <laughs> exactly. They still have a very good, very good chance, actually, at that point. They were literally you know, we do need more snacks. snacks. That's probably why everyone left. Get yeah. that, get that man. I don't think there was anybody left in the entrepreneurship and leadership departments. I think everybody was gone. It was literally just me. So they're looking at you, just being like, they're like looking at you, thinking, "This guy's a sucker. Let's hire him. Let's promote him." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was, a, that was. Except okay, but here's the thing. Uh, let me just say, as a, as a, uh, so I show up. And, um, you know, nine months or whatever, uh, 11 months into your, into your time there. And there I had, I had no sense that you were just like handed a job as some like patsy or something. <laughs> um, no, I'm serious. I, there was, there was nothing about you or the way that you carried the role that made me think, uh, this guy doesn't own this role or that this guy doesn't deserve this role or that he wasn't sought out for this role. And, and I don't know if that was you just projecting or faking till you making it or whatever you did. But um, for me, it was like, there, there was no question about like your role and, and, and the way that you pushed the vision from a very small pocket into a, to be across the whole organization, which was um, far bigger than a high school. If anybody can imagine, it's like, Imagine like a, a small university basically is, is how, it, how it functions. You know, it's funny you say that because in, in many ways, if you think about the story I've shared with you, this was the culmination of, you know, what is it? I graduated in 2004. So about six years of thinking and dreaming, right? Like this was like my dream job, right? This was, this is, this was you know, I'd, I'd, done, I'd done leadership curriculum at Impact. 
I'd work with young people at, at the Institute. I'd done financial literacy. I helped, you know, entrepreneurs. Like, like I just, this was like me. And now I get to do like the thing that I really believe in is like help Africa be better. <laughs> right? Like what? I mean, young people, like it was just, it was, it was, it was, it fit me so well. And so I spoke with an authority that came from deep within myself. I didn't require any external parties. And, and I, I just had a clear vision of what this place needed to do to live up to, you know, its own desires, right? And I loved it because those, those are the words that I, if I could have dared to put words out there, those are the words that I would have put out there. And so, you know, it reminds me of like, there's this one, there's this random verse in the Bible. It just, it basically says something like Jesus spoke with authority. And, and, and I can't remember what exactly it was, but there was this idea of like speaking with authority. Like he had, there was nothing else. He just spoke to the people, like the, the leaders of the temple with such authority. And I just, I was like, what does that mean? All right. Like, what does that actually mean? And it's just like this, this sense of knowing, like, I know something you don't, and I'm just going to say it with very, just very kind of plainly. And I believe it. And, and that authority has power. And so I think that's probably, as I think about it, Ryan, it's probably what um, <clears throat> I, I felt or, or I sensed that in, in myself. By the way, I, I'm looking up the, the verse here. And it's Matthew seven twenty nine, And the NIV version is because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I remember my first day, I was super nervous. Uh, I was really, really nervous. Because actually, I never really led a team up until that point. Um, so it was a stretch for me, too. But I remember coming in, and I think one of the things I knew then was just like, again, that humility from those other experiences were really... Um, was in my mind. I was just like, look, guys, I'm nervous. I don't really know what I'm doing here. <laughs> so, but I, but I think I said to you all, like, but here are the things that I value. I think, I think I led with like the values that I had, right. And what I wanted to commit to them to do and, and what I hoped that they would commit to do. And I think, um, and that really was the foundation of our work. What does it really mean to be a lead, uh, the head of leadership at a, you know, at a school like this? Like, what is your, what was the daily routine? Like, what were some of the actual practices and things you were doing to instill leadership? Well, I think, yeah, I think what, what, what I've come to really understand is like, it's really about organizational behavior, right? So for me, it was a culture, it was a cultural, right? We talked a lot about not only did we have to develop curriculum to teach students how to embody good leadership, which we have to define as well. You, you do that and so, you know, whatever, like, so part of it is, is, you know, is you're facilitating a team of educators and so you have meetings about class and like what program you're going to do and, you know, blah, 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 which kid needs to get a, a grade and doesn't need to get a grade, which new kids needs to get a report. So you're doing that stuff. But then the, what was exciting for me about the show was that there's this whole organizational element where it's like, hey, we're supposed to be a leadership academy, but we're not living up to that name, right? We have to live up to it culturally. And so then it became like, how do we get leadership to be part of how we do sports, how we do our residence life, how we do our admissions, uh, how we do our hiring. And, and that was like, like for me, the really powerful stuff, right? Trying to really uh, deeply inculcate like the leadership ethos that we had developed and created into every part of that uh, institution so that it would live and live long after us. 
Um, and that was fun. And then there was just like, there was just opportunities that were just mushrooming because of that good work, you know? Um, and I, you know, I had, I had lots of, I had lots of ideas of what we would do after. I thought we would create our own press. I wanted to do ALA press. We would write books on the continent about issues that, you know, aren't written and talked about enough that, you know, you know, we would sponsor, you know, data, you know, research in ways, you know, um, there were just so many things that still in my mind about what ALA can do and could do. So I just, it was just a, what was beautiful, like there was just a wealth of ideas that were pouring forth from within me. Um, and that made it so much fun. And then the people were great to work with. Just a, just a, uh, just a quick couple things to what Sheikh was saying, because I, I he's, he's humble. Um, he was, the, the, the role was to basically be the, the thought leader of the organization around the namesake of the organization. And so while we had a very famous founder, uh, this guy named Fred, who's like been time times 100, like most influential people in the world, the actual uh, d- definition of what we taught kids and what became this magnet for the world was really shaped by Shegs. And, um, and the fact that it's now spread across the organization. And, and if you talk to anybody uh, in Africa about like, who's doing really good work, you will not get three names deep without hearing of African leadership Academy or African leadership university. I promise you. And, um, and, and really that came from the work that Sheggs led. Uh, and, and I watched him lead uh, for, for a number of years. And now uh, because of the work he he and I were able to do and others to consult to other schools around the world, you now hear Sheg's name uh, thrown out around in in good ways uh, in in like in a place like in rural Kenya where they've started a school that's that's modeled after ALA in a in a random school in Slovakia in another place <laughs> in in Colombia. Um, the, these other these sort of copycat schools have started up and and the stuff that Sheg's did was basically copy pasted into those other uh, environments. And so to not to be the head of leadership of entrepreneurial leadership at ALA was not just like being a department head who organized meetings, although that was part of it. Um, There was so much more in the shaping of the ethos of the organization that again is now um, global and is, is so highly regarded. Hmm. I should thank you, Ryan, for, for that. Cause it actually is relevant for me now because I'm trying to find what I, what, what my next, you know, passion. It's really not about passion. It's really about what my next purpose work is really. Um, like, and, and trying to hone in what, what do I really do best? And, and I think, again, kind of going back to this idea of culture, system wide, like organizational change. And, and, you know, that's, that's, that's what I really uh, love. And I think um, it's hard work, but I love getting into that stuff. Taking a note here, you said purpose what? What was it? You said your next purpose work. Yeah, purpose work, I think. <laughs> uh, can you, because you, you, you've made that distinction a couple of times. Yes. Can you elaborate on, on it for us? Um, yeah. We've been making a podcast about passion projects, and I think we maybe need to switch to purpose projects. So, <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you explain the, like, in your mind, how you've, because it sounded earlier like you were saying you kind of evolved the idea of it being a work about passion to a work about purpose. I think about it, imagine you have a, a platoon, right? Um, and they've been called to 
a mission, let's say a peacekeeping mission, right? So their mission, right, is very specific. Their mission is to protect the hospital in Ouagadougou, right? Um, that's their mission, okay? Now, but their purpose, their purpose is to actually, is actually to bring, is to, is, is to bring, is to allow democracy to flourish, right, in that country, right? So there's a, there's a higher purpose to the mission that they live out every day, right? Mission is what you do day to day. Um, I would often talk about purpose and I'll even talk about vision, right? So you might have a vision, right? So their vision is, is, is to see that hospital be, uh, be free to do what it does, right? To be free to allow um, people of, of all shapes and sizes get the resources and the health they need to have a flourishing population that can then go about and create economic growth and blah, 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 blah. And that's this vision that's driving the work of this platoon. So you've got this platoon who's, whose purpose is to ultimately bring about democracy, right? Or to, to let democracy flourish. Um, they've got a vision for what this hospital will do for this community. They've got a mission right now, right? And then they, then they have strategies, right? Well, the way, how do we secure, how do we make this hospital safe? We need to have a strategy for that. And so we think it's about, uh, you know, soft power or, or, or you know, or we need to show our, our, our show of force. We need to bring all the military guns and air force things we have, right? So you have different strategies. And, and then I, I would talk about tactics, right? Tactics are, are the, ultimately the way in which you deploy, right? Those, those strategies. And so um, that doesn't really get to passion, but I, I would say that for me, you know, that's how I've always thought about purpose. It was like, it's this, it's this big overarching, like long-term aim that that you hope to accomplish passion i mean it's funny because passion doesn't really fit into that really um passions are the things that you just like to do <laughs> you know i used to tell my kids passions are the things that you wake up early to do or you stay up late to do and that when you hit a bump in the road you still do it anyway you know like you still want to keep doing it even if it's hard so you're um, saying purpose purpose work is sort of like an idea that's so big that and so important that discomfort is kind of maybe not irrelevant, but isn't dis, isn't a distraction from what you're trying to do purpose for purpose, you know, with purpose. And a passion project is a little bit more of of the things that you feel good about in the moment, but don't necessarily add up to a to a larger something yeah. larger than you. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's a great point. I think. Passion is probably, as you talk about it, I think about it as like, it's probably more personal exploration and purpose that has more to do with other people, right? Like how you make mm. the world and others, you know, a better place. Mm. Um, yeah, and so passion is about exploring the things you're good at, uh, maybe developing them, you know, strengthening them, you know, you know, passion, passion is, those things are good. Um, but I, I also, I think your passions have to serve your purpose. In a previous in a previous interview, uh, Tori that we interviewed put it. She said she read this from uh, Yuval Harari that you've got a narrative self and an experienced self, and the narrative self is about what you know. Essentially, what's the arc of your life that you're trying to be about? An experienced self is sort of like what's the arc of your day, and mm -hmm. and that you know she's she's considering becoming a foster parent. And she was talking about how her experience self right now, the entire day, every day is her oyster. She can do with it what she wishes. 
and that being coming a foster parent is coming at the expense of her experienced self in favor of her narrative self and that she cares about something bigger. Would you, is that kind of, a bit analogous to what you're saying, the passion versus purpose? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, for me, purpose may allow me to make some choices that were, like you said, that were steps backwards. I didn't have a passion for, for cutting sandwiches. Um, but I had, a, but I, it, I, it got me closer towards my purpose. I knew where I needed to be to get towards that purpose yeah. idea, that broader narrative of life yeah. that I felt compelled by. Um, and so I actually, I learned passions along the way. I got to explore passions. I got to, some passions, you know, leave you. You know, I used to be, I used to be real passionate about like American football, mm-hmm. right? American basketball. I, I, I could stay up all night and watch that stuff. Um, but I grew and towards my purpose in such ways that my, my, the ones that best suited that purpose kind right. of came to the fore. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, yeah. I would say, you, you, you know, explore your passions for sure. It's good to explore them things, know what drives you, what motivates you, what kind of gets you into that flow space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're not going to be enough. I think it's pretty clear that Potbelly wasn't like a big passioneers. Uh, not even, it's not well, even on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Again, I don't want to, I don't want to skip over too much, but what is some of the stuff that you were doing? Like what is, how has that affected what you're doing now? And maybe start with what are you doing now? Yeah. Owner and lead consultants, leadership <sighs> consultants. Uh, yeah. There's something I've heard those types of terms a lot. And I'm like, what are you, what do people in those positions do? <laughs> and I would just, I would love to learn more because I think there's so much substance there and so much usefulness and just so yeah. many life-changing experiences. I'm sure. Oh, hotspot. That was a hotspot question right there. <laughs> what do you even do? <laughs> so, what would you say you do there? Yeah. Like my LinkedIn says sort of my day job and then like my, 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 my entrepreneurial adventures, I, as I might call them. But uh, yeah, my day job currently is working at, a, at an independent school. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that's changed. Like I went there with a, a sense of purpose to help reshape how they think about community service and to give them a, a really a, a culture shift. Uh, COVID-19 has, has, has uh, um, curtailed that. So I'm teaching, teaching social studies to seventh graders currently. Um, it's not my passion. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm struggling. I'm struggling with that. Um, I, if I'm honest with you, after leaving ALA, I have not felt professionally connected with a a sense of, a sense of purpose, uh, since ALA. And I'm actually, so why why did you, I mean, maybe I should, maybe I skipped over this part. Why did you leave? Uh, remember the, oh my gosh. So remember those leadership thesis things we used to do, Ryan? Oh my gosh. I think I, I had one, one year. This was a, it was a assignment every student had to do before they left the academy. It was, okay, you've been studying leadership for two years. What, 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 what can you say about yourself? What have you learned about who you are as a, as a leader, uh, as a person? Uh, who do you want to be in your life? That was, so it was, everyone had to do it before they left the institution. It was cool. It was like a thesis and you had to defend it. You had to defend it in front of people like you defend your, your PhD thesis or your whatever. And anyways, but um, we, we, when, when my team and my, crew of friends began to leave, we began, I think Ryan, you started this when you left, uh, or maybe it was from beta, I can't remember, but uh, we said, let, let's do our, let's do our closing, 
process by like writing a reflection on what we've learned and what we've gained. And um, anyway, so I say all that to say that I think I wrote mine and I, I can't remember what it was that really drove me to leave, but I, I mean, the, the, the simple answers were that I started a family and it was time to move back to the States. And I think that's really what I struggle with of late in my life is that my purpose has become more about my family, right? My kids. Um, and I've struggled with that because I've derived so much of my personal identity from my vocational purpose. Um, and so I've actually, in this last three or four years, I've had to actually accept that the work I'm doing doesn't feel deeply connected to my sense of purpose in the world. I mean, obviously I'm not doing things that I'm like, I don't believe in, um, but it doesn't hit all those spots like ALA did all those years ago. But maybe I you want to start a podcast. I was going to say, I think we've got me. the next focus of the podcast. <laughs> me, and, me and you are in the same situation. We just, found Jake's, we just found Jake's podcast this week. So perfect. You know, it's funny because um, for many years, and this is one of those passions that I need to explore is writing. Um, yeah. And I think I've, I've been, I've been avoiding it for, for many number of years. And I, and I feel like maybe there's, there's a time is coming that I need to write a lot of the things that I've learned, all these stories, all these ideas. So many, so many, so many thinking processes have gone into where I, I am now, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's, there's another way. And so, you know, my work, so, but a plain short story is that, uh, so I came back from ALA, I moved from South Africa. I was still working with African Leadership Academy for a couple of years after I moved to the States. But then I realized like, look, I've been doing this for other people. I need to do, I want to have my own experience. I've been teaching my students to be entrepreneurs and I, I've not done it myself. Like I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. I want to experience what it means to be an entrepreneur. So I decided I want to go out on my own. So for about a year and a half, I, I started, I became a solopreneur, which is another thing I, I realized is different than than other things, right? Being a solopreneur is not the same thing as being a, an entrepreneur, in my, in my view. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I started a consultancy. I called it Global Leadership Advisors. And I spent, I did a lot of work consulting back to ALA and ALU and, and, and you know, kind of uh, trying to help solidify a lot of that leadership work. Um, but then eventually started to move some more into like working with, you know, um, projects here in the States, do a lot of innovation design kind of stuff, helping people think about new products, new stream, new revenue streams. But now, and I, and I do some curriculum design here and there, like you know, around leadership or design thinking work. Um, but they're just, you know, and they are, they are passions. They're the kinds of things that I would enjoy doing late at night, right? Like I love talking about this work. I love teaching about that kind of thing, leadership and, and design thinking. Um, I enjoy that. Those are passions for me. And so those are like literally, truly like passion side projects. Um, but they don't amass to anything. Um, and, and then there's that, there's a missing hole there for me. So um, it's inter inter interestingly enough, right now, one of the clients that I'm um, consulting with is, a, is an organization called eFacil. And they actually do a lot of consulting and coaching uh, in relation to organizational culture, right? Um, and I'm finding it's just like, it's scratching all of those itches and not all of them, so many of those itches again, which is why Ryan, what you were sharing about like the work I did at ALA really reminds me of that, right? You know, I love that 
organizational building, people culture formation stuff that I think makes, a, 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 you know, particularly that makes mission-driven, purpose-driven organizations yeah, uh, live up to their, to their, uh, to what they espouse to be. Mm. So is, is any part of it uh, a longing to get back to Africa? Oh, a big part of it is. I mean, that's, that's the mis- I mean, I can do so many things here, but if it's not Africa related or Africa connected, it's, it's, it's still a bit hollow. So, <clears throat> but again, I also recognize timing and seasons. I, 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 again, like I'm not 50 yet. So my great, in many ways, I don't think my great masterpiece has even come yet. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, focusing on my kids. Like they're my leadership academy right now, and and, and actually, and I'm, and they're humbling me incredibly. I'm, I'm getting humiliated on a daily basis, and and that is that is d- developing humility in new ways that I, I didn't know I needed, and so um, I think I'm recognizing that. Um, so, but we'll see. I mean, I think we we know as a family now. Now I have to think more of it as a family, and this is interesting too. Like. Before, I, all those moves I made, I made on my own. Um, now I have to think uh, with my family and, the, and, and the, the interests of their development and of their, uh, their passion and their purpose. Um, and that I've had to learn that becomes a priority for me in my life. Um, and I struggle with that. <laughs> I yeah. struggle with feeling like a very big call to like help the world and you know the African context and wondering like what's more you know what should have the greater priorities that you know saving the world or like saving my kids getting your kids to bed you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. um, get them to eat their veggies I know, um, so first of all there's three things I want to so just to set up where, where I want to go so um, you know we want this podcast to help people explore themselves and their passion and purpose um, and so we really want to help people have like tools coming out of this. Basically what I'd like to do is make a template that we could get in people's hands that they could download is kind of nice. the idea. So two things you hit on one is this transition email <laughs> that I think was really interesting. And I, and I think it has, it struck me as the type of thing you write when you're trying to, when you're kind of in your own head and you're stuck in your current place and you're trying to figure out how to organize your thoughts, how to, um, activate your network that currently exists and and how to just consider what you really want to do as a next step from this place that you're in that you may not love. Could you explain to us the transition email a little more? Are you looking it up right now? Yeah, I am. So what, what we do at eFacil when we transition coach, we take people through what we call a trifecta survey. The beautiful thing about this trifecta survey, again, why I love working with this organization, because this is stuff that I already believe. I did this in impact. Right, my first year out of college, my manager made us do a survey and said, "What are your three great strengths? Right? Um, what are the uh, what are the things you're what are the three things you're really good at, better than anyone else in the world? Right? Get other people to tell you. Right? Um, and you know what is it that you're you know you have like a great sense of like passion around? And then what are three what are three three jobs that relate to those things? Right?" And um, I still remember in many ways some stuff that people wrote, but uh, being highly empathetic, uh, being eclectic, those were like like three, two of the strengths I remember. Um, you know, yeah, relationally, relational empathy was like really high. 
And then the, I remember the roles that people said about me, like they thought I could be a museum curator, a film director, a father, a life coach, and something else. But that life coach thing has stuck with me since then, since, since mm. 2004. And, and, and I, that's what I do now. And so, um, so you wrote your own list of these things and you asked your community to answer at all, all of the above, like three great strengths that you're better at than anyone else in the world. Yeah. Three things you have a passion around that they've noticed about you and then jobs they know that relate to those passions. Yeah. Yeah. And those passions are the strengths. Like what could you see, what could you see me being really great at with, with what you've now identified about me? And so that was powerful. And then basically just, um, I kind of knew some of that stuff already. And then I kind of put down, uh, and even what we at EFCL do now is we create a template that, that basically makes that into an email, right? And so you, you put that together, here are my strengths, here are my passions, and here are the, here are the kind of roles that I'm looking for. You know, if you see it, let me know, mm. right? Um, and that, that was a powerful tool. And it is still, I think, proves to be a powerful tool in a transition process. So you basically um, get like 10 people to answer these as an input. And then you kind of, as the person, you, you assemble that, you kind of reflect on it and assemble it into your version of essentially what they gave you an input on yeah. and sort of yeah. lay out what you want. And yeah. then you send it to the, your even larger community and say, this is what I'm looking for. Help yeah. me out. Cool. Yeah, the cool tool would be something that you could do on your own, right? So, uh, you know, EFIZO provides the benefit of a coach helping you yeah. think through and process through all these things. but um you know now i've always thought about how could you make coaching yeah. uh, self-help right like you can ask the right questions to help someone think through um these things so yeah that would be definitely one tool okay the yeah. other the other tool i wanted to ask about was you wrote a manifesto at ala and that um sort of opened an opportunity within there and i thought that was really interesting because the transition email to me sounds like when you know that where you're at isn't the right place to be and you're ready to, to transition somewhere. And the manifesto struck me as this, this is a little bit of, this is the entrepreneur who has a vision for where this place could be going, potentially has maybe even in a place of, uh, um, I have nothing to lose potentially, right? Like just, I know I have a vision for what this could be and it's not realizing it. So I'm going to put forth what I see it could be. And maybe that will open a door and maybe it will close a door hard. But yeah. tell me about the manifesto and just like, what, what do you put in a manifesto? Where's the, what's the mindset you got to be in? I've done this in almost every organization I've been in. It seems, um, <laughs> it's funny. Well, I, was, I was with a mentor of mine talking with a mentor of mine. He actually was helping push me on my passion he was kind of passion coaching me actually just this past week. And, and he always goes back to the letter I wrote to the president of impact <laughs> and I kind of dropped the mic, you know, and it was like one of those things that like either opened the door or it closed the door. But it's basically, I mean, it's basically all the things that you, you imagine this thing can be right. Um, uh, again, I'm, I'm pretty idealistic, but you know, I had a lot of hopes and aspirations for what impact could be. And, and what I tend to see is like, I, I can see how it's, it's not living up to what it says it wants to be. Like, that's my thing. Like, I, I want you to be what you say you want to be, right? If, if this is what you say you want to be, like, I usually always go back to your mission or something that like you've put out there that this is what you say you want to be as an organization. This is what I'm seeing, right? And, bec- and oftentimes people in leadership don't get to see all the grassroots stuff. 
And I just usually kind of lay that out. And I usually give some examples, like this is what I see. And this is, and this is the impact that it's having. Like this is the cause, which is why I remember when we got to ALA and the people telling you about situation impact and behavior, I was like, I, I love that. That, that, it, that resonates with me because it's already, it's already felt been a true part of my life. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of been, and then, and then ultimately you kind of, you remind them of who they are, right? Who they say they want to be, show them where, how there's like, discrepancy right there's this real dissonance that has and I, i'm often worried about like the the cultural implications right like the long-term implications like how this is going to harm your ability to live out your thing and then you know I, I usually try to throw some options out there some solutions out there like you know do this do that there's something it's interesting you talk about that because it's funny because at amazon one of the one of the concepts that's really common that everybody knows about is called the working the working backwards method and the idea is you, in practice, it's like, well, you think about where you want to go and you work backwards from there or what you want to create. And then you work backwards from there. But in actual practice, what people do, and this is done all the time, is that if you want to develop something, it's encouraged to go pursue that. If you want to create a new product, I mean, it's no surprise why Amazon has so many different products. And it's so it's a cool philosophy, which is you write a what's called a, a press release. It's a fake press release in the future for a pers a product or a service or a program. And you describe what it is and how it's effective and why it's valuable. And then you also do an FAQ section that kind of fills in the gaps that the press release doesn't fill in. So it's called a PR FAQ. And this is how actually things get created and moving in Amazon is that you, you, it's almost like a manifesto for, I want to create this. This is what it looks like in the future. And here is me answering kind of all the other questions uh, that could possibly come up. And you present this to your manager or your leadership, and that's kind of how things get going. And if nothing else, it just kind of like helps pinpoint vision, helps pinpoint what you want to do, helps get it in writing. It helps kind of weed out bad ideas and helps you think through all the different, different scenarios and ways it could go wrong. You know, like for, for example, like I've, I've written one recently and the idea, one of the questions is what's the plan to globalize this? And you're like, ah, crap, I have no idea. <laughs> and, but there's so many little things you got to think about when you start writing it out. That's, I think how so often things get moving. Well, I like, I like the FAQ part of that because I think one of the challenges as a CEO of an organization is you get a lot of press releases from people in your company hoping that, hey, look, I got a great idea. This is what we should do. And not really thinking through anything after that and right. leaving that, well, CEO, I've handed you the genius idea. I guess you'll run with it or whatever. Yep. So I like that because it's a good framework to help maybe someone who doesn't have a lot of experience thinking through all of the ramifications of a good idea helps them do it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's funny is like the, the PR part a lot of times is the normal length of a regular press release about a page. But then the FAQ part is <laughs> a lot longer than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I, I love the it, it's it's a method uh, something that I'm learning myself just professionally. And the fact that you started doing that at a really young age, personally, is it's pretty impressive. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. yeah something else that comes to mind is a tool that I, I like yeah. a lot that I use at ALA is um, it's called a strategic outcomes worksheet. It's, it's basically like um, the theory of change logic model kind of thing and is that it's basically that work backwards working backwards design kind of idea. Um, and it, um, 
basically challenge you to think about five stages of 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 of, of anything, right? But that's where you where you where you you know where impact matters, and so you kind of work with from your vision or like you know where the impact is. And you work through like a, you know, your um, it's like short to medium term outcomes. Then you have outputs, uh, which is very important. Learn lessons that I learned, right? Um, I learned this at like at Operation Hope and other places where it's like, you know, the 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 numbers of what you do does not does not you know, the question was so what right so what that you had a hundred people go through your seminar so what what did that actually change what was the impact of that and so that was a big lesson learned from that that document and so anyway but it, it helps you think about that like what's the output versus what's like what are the short-term outcomes and then the long-term outcomes then you, what, what are your inputs what are the resources do you need and then what are your daily activities um so that's a that's a tool that I, i've used a lot it's pretty helpful well, you hear a book recommendation at the very least. Um, I mean, the book that I'm reading now, or trying to read now, is Love Your Enemy. Um, it's a really cool book that I'm liking quite a bit. But it's basically about where we are as a country and our partisan divide and, and what it means to, to learn to love your enemies. And it's funny because we're actually reading it as a church, even though it's not, I think it's, it's not a uh, I think it might be a secular author. I don't know, but um, but I, th I think I, I like I like that I like the ideas there, and I think it's 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 pretty provocative stuff. So hmm. that's something I'm reading now. Yeah, you recommend? But, but if you actually if you're actually talking about what I would recommend for someone who's on a purpose journey, right, in search of a purpose passion, mm -hmm. I would recommend. Drum roll, please. The Dream Giver. The Dream Giver. Yeah, I read that book when I was 20, whatever, something. And it was phenomenal. Hmm. It's, 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 it's kind of like The Alchemist. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's got a, a, a Christian perspective, but it, it, it really it shaped so much and it spoke so much to me and it gave me so much more confidence and belief. Yeah. And so I would, I would recommend that to anybody. I have one final question. See. Are you passionate about bow ties? <laughs> ah, see, that's one of those passions that fades, man. Like I used to be. Uh, <laughs> man. I, I mean, I have, a, I, I have a collection somewhere in this house, but I, I don't know. My current job doesn't allow me to wear it. And so hmm. I haven't worn a bow tie in maybe two and a half, three years or something. You're like not allowed to wear a bow tie in your current job? Yeah, it's not. It's not. That I'm not allowed. The culture of the place does got not. It, yeah. uh, got it. And I haven't. I found myself trying to assimilate into the culture. Yeah. So. Shegs, thank you so much. This has been. I know it's late where you are, and that's not lost on us. Thank you so much for just telling this whole story. I mean, it's you just you do have quite a remarkable story, and I know that it's not over. And as you kind of keep saying, like it's it hasn't even gotten to the best part yet. Which is a good reminder, I think, for me too, because sometimes we realize, think that it's we got to do it now, we got to yeah. do it now, and just kind of recognizing that hey, we're still in the learning phase. That's a really good reminder. Yeah, but you're most welcome. It's, it's a joy, and this yeah, is man. this is a passion of mine. I, I could do this all night and deal with the consequences tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. All right, sir. Thank you so much, X. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, good to meet you. Hit that outro music. A quick update since the recording of this episode, Shex has since left his school job and he's joined eFacil full-time and it's now called Unison, a company that helps with organizational transformation, leadership development, and delivering people operations solutions. 
He's also consulting to schools on the side about their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So thanks again for listening to this season of The Interesting Lies of Normal People. If you like what you heard, then we'd really appreciate giving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends. It really helps new people find us. Thanks again to Huga for letting us use her music in this episode and in this season. You can find more of her music on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.